Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of The Hour of Peril, Daniel Stashauer. Daniel Stashauer, author of The Hour of Peril, The Secret Plot to Murder Lincoln Before the Civil War. Was it hard to come up with an Abraham Lincoln book that hadn't been written about a dozen times before? Well, yes. As you may know, this is not the first book ever to feature uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, where uh, I'm up here today from, uh, from D.C. and at the Ford's Theater Center in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, there's a five-story stack of books about Lincoln. It's 34 feet high. Uh, so yes, well you, well you might ask. <laughs> but uh, it turns out that uh, not only have there been uh, acres of very, very good books written by modern scholars, but you could build a bridge from here to Springfield, Illinois, out of books that were written at the time, Lincoln as I knew him books. And it turns out very few of them agree on what happened during this particular episode. So part of the challenge of this book, uh, as well as the enjoyment of it, was to uh, try to unpack some of that historical baggage, to untangle some of the crossed wires, and try to get at the heart of what happened. Well, set the stage for it then. It's the, the secret plot to, to uh, assassinate Lincoln. When did it happen? What was going on? Well, here it is in a nutshell. Uh, the year is 1861. Lincoln has just been elected president. And it turns out that there was a period in our nation's history when um, presidential elections had a polarizing effect on the population. I mean, very un unlike the uh, perfect harmony and civility of our, of our present day. Uh, and uh, by the time Lincoln is inaugurated, uh, seven states have already seceded from the Union. And as he's preparing to make his trip from Springfield, Illinois, by train to Washington, D.C., for his inauguration, the air is filled with rumors that he will be shot or stabbed or that his train will be blown up at a whistle-stop appearance in Baltimore. Alan Pinkerton, the legendary detective of the famous Pinkerton National Detective Agency, is on the scene. He's already in Baltimore. And he's only got 13 days in which to uncover concrete evidence of this looming plot because, Pinkerton's, uh, because Lincoln's train has left the station in every sense of that phrase and is on the way. Well, how did Pinkerton get involved in it? Well, uh, Pinkerton, uh, well, I should, I should go on to, to, say, uh, to say Pinkerton is an, is an interesting uh, character. And to come back to your original question about finding something to say about uh, Lincoln, in, a, in a, a very real way, I set out to do a book on Alan Pinkerton. 
oh. who has fascinated me for years. And it was uh, only in the course of uncovering, of reading about, learning about this very interesting episode from his career that I got pulled into Lincoln's uh, inexorable uh, gravitational pull. Well, and for people who don't know, let's back up a little bit about Alan Pinkerton. Who, who was he? Well, he's a fascinating f figure. Uh, he is a tough nut, scrappy, grizzled, quick to anger. He was born in Scotland. He came to America as a young man, as a cooper, a barrel maker. And it looks like he's going to go on quietly making barrels in Dundee, Illinois, for the rest of his life. And one day, he's out cutting wood for barrel staves. And he stumbles across something that looks suspicious to him. Uh, he investigates. He's sort of crouching behind a bush. Comes to find out that this island where he's been cutting supplies is being used by a gang of counterfeiters. And they have gathered there to divide their ill-gotten spoils. Well, he comes back the next day with the sheriff, they investigate further, and before you know it, they have rounded up this uh, gang of counterfeiters. Well, the next thing you know, Pinkerton is a lawman, and he rises up through the ranks, and soon uh, he becomes something entirely new, a private detective. He's in Chicago now, and his logo is a stern, unblinking eye glaring out over the words, we never sleep. And soon that logo, the hypervigilant eyeball, gives rise to a new expression, private eye. And he was the first. Uh, he was also Chicago's first detective? Yes, yes. Uh, it's sometimes reported that he was the first detective in America. That's not strictly true. Uh, but he was by far uh, the most successful, and he was in the right place at the right time because America's railroads were expanding at a fantastic rate and pushing across jurisdictional lines. And very often the authority of the, of, of the locals had to stop at, at the county line. Pinkerton, the authority he claimed for himself, he literally designed his own badge, allowed him to go where the work took him. And he, before long, he is protecting America's railroads. He's a railroad detective. He got shot at one point. Shot in the back, was it? Yeah, he's walking down the street. Uh, and if we measure his success as a detective by the uh, um, number and uh, degree of his, of his um, opponents, he must have been pretty successful because he's walking down the street one day and somebody jumps out from nowhere, shoots him in the back. One of Pinkerton's quirks is that he tended to walk with one arm tucked behind him, almost like the rudder of a ship, and he had this sort of forward-tilting uh, stride. And his arm behind his back caught the bullet, and they dug it out of his arm uh, later that night, and he was back at work before you know it. And he, by that time, he had cultivated a, uh, a reputation as being literally unstoppable. He was an abolitionist. Yes, he was. And this is something that uh, not a lot of people know about him. But uh, he was an abolitionist, first in, uh, when he was running his little cooperage in Dundee, Illinois, 
And later in Chicago, he ran stations on the Underground Railroad, helping fugitive runaway slaves make their way north to freedom. Pinkerton being Pinkerton, he was a man of powerful passions and extremes. He went pretty far with it, befriending John Brown, the notorious uh, fire and brimstone abolitionist. Now, uh, you know, as we all know, Brown, John Brown was an extremely controversial figure, and uh, in his uh, famous raid uh, in uh, the, the late 1850s, several people were left dead. Uh, and it is uh, one of the peculiar contrasts in Alan Pinkerton's nature that he supported him as unreservedly as he did, gave him shelter under his roof, helped him to find food and clothing for uh, the fugitives, believed that John Brown was one of the great men of the age. So by day, Pinkerton is a lawman, and by night he's breaking the law, uh, violating the Fugitive Slave Act, helping this man who is, a, who is wanted uh, it, carry out his work. Pinkerton said in a memoir, no effort of mine was spared uh, to, to uh, serve among the abolitionists. John Brown and I spent many a long night side by side uh, trying to help fleeing bondsmen, as he called them. He was also friends with uh, General McClellan. Yeah, that's an, uh, another very interesting thing about his early years coming up as a railroad detective. One of his uh, most important clients was the Illinois Central Railroad. And while Pinkerton was working on the Illinois Central, McClellan was also working there. And the two of them knew each other, uh, and Pinkerton became very fond of McClellan, devoted to him, and wound up hitching his wagon to McClellan in the early years of the war. But it's worth pointing out that the Illinois Central also had a lawyer on retainer during these years, and his name was Abraham Lincoln. So the point is that all of these guys, particularly Pinkerton and Lincoln, moved uh, on the same tracks as they were coming up and knew of each other. They did know of each other. They did know of each other, uh, um, and they must have met, although there's no specific uh, uh, record of it. Uh, but 10 years on, when Lincoln is the president-elect of the United States and he's being told that there are men waiting to kill him in Baltimore, he trusts Alan Pinkerton. He knows him. He knows his work. When Pinkerton was building his detective agency, what, what kind of jobs did he do and how did he do them? He, he did all kinds of work, uh, a lot of it having to do with the railroad. Um, but one very interesting early case that took place uh, here in Pennsylvania, in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, I involved uh, the Adams Express Company, a company that was responsible for moving uh, money and valuables and important papers safely uh, back and forth. And uh, a leather, a locked leather courier pouch containing thousands of dollars went missing between uh, Georgia and Alabama. And suspicion fell on a man named Nathan Maroney, who was, who was an employee of the Adams Express Company. He was the last person 
to have possession of the pouch, the key, and you know, had the motive, means, and opportunity. So uh, Pinkerton advised that he be kept under observation. And they contrived a way of uh, scooping this guy up and putting him in, putting him in jail. Meanwhile, uh, Maroney's wife, who Pinkerton believed held the key to, this, uh, to, to the solution to this case, came to Jenkintown, Pennsylvania to visit relatives. Well, here's where it gets interesting, because Pinkerton had in his employ a young woman named Kate Warren. And I love this part. Uh, it's, it's my favorite thing in the book. One day in 1856, Pinkerton is sitting at his desk, and there's a knock at the door. And he looks up to see a young woman standing there. And she says, my name is Kate Warren. She's a young widow. She's 22 or 23 years old at this time. And she's looking for work. Well, this is very unusual. Uh, and at th that time, even you know, secretarial work was being done by, by men for the most part. Pinkerton says to her, it is not the custom to hire women as detectives. How exactly do you propose to be of service? And she's ready for this. She says, uh, a woman can worm out secrets in ways that are impossible for men. And what she proposed to do was, you know, she says, um, a man may keep his secrets from his fellow men, but he will not hide it from his wife or his girlfriend. So what she proposes to do is strike up useful friendships with the wives or uh, girlfriends of people who are suspected of crimes. Slowly over time, the secret will come out, and that will be useful in the investigation. That's what she did again and again. And in this particular episode that brought Pinkerton and his team to uh, Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, she was at it for a long time. Uh, she checked into the rooming house. Kate Warren checked into the rooming house where Mrs. Maroney, the wife of the suspected thief, was staying. Slowly over time, built up this confidence until finally, uh, one evening, uh, this woman confesses all. And there's a scene where uh, Kate is told that the money is buried in the dirt basement of this hotel where they're staying. And later that same night, she sort of bursts onto the scene where Pinkerton and his men and uh, uh, officials from the railroad have gathered. She's covered in dirt. And the, the, uh, the, the missing pouch is unlocked. The money's counted. It's nearly all there. And she sinks back in her chair. And Pinkerton says she had the satisfaction of knowing that to a woman went the honors of the day. She's just a remarkable figure and easily my favorite thing about the whole story. Is there enough material out there for a book about Kate Warren? You know, I wish uh, she unfortunately died very young. And it was the nature of the, uh, of the Pinkerton operations that it was a lot of people working together uh, to make it work. So she was always a vitally important part of several important investigations. Uh, but it was sort of um, f by following her, 
that I that I came to this story, which is uh, sort of the high water mark not only for her but for Pinkerton. So she was involved in the Lincoln. Yes, plot, she was. Uh, yes, she was. Whatever you call it. Um, how did Pinkerton get enlisted? Well. I began uh, here in Philadelphia, actually. Uh, I mentioned that a lot of his work was coming because he was on retainer with uh, railroad agencies, with railroad lines. At that time, uh, the railroad system in America was really a patchwork of independent regional lines. And one of them was the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore line. And not only in the event of the likelihood of war, but also for Lincoln's journey from Springfield to Washington for his inauguration, the Philadelphia-Wilmington-Baltimore route was going to be key. It was run by a man named Samuel Felton who had his offices in Philadelphia. And he was catching rumors and all kinds of uh, very alarming talk that there was, uh, there were rumors afoot of plots to destroy or disable his railroad, possibly by blowing up the vulnerable bridges that crossed over water. And in this way, uh, they would be able to cut off this vital connecting link between the North and Washington, D.C. This alarmed Felton greatly, as, as you would expect. Not only was it a threat to the railroad that is, had been his life's great labor, but it also, uh, in, the, in the event of, of, of war, would uh, leave Washington, D.C. isolated and, and cut off. So he hired Pinkerton. And one of the uh, very curious things about this episode is that when uh, Pinkerton signed on, he had no idea he was investigating a conspiracy against President-elect Lincoln. He was there to protect the railroads initially, period. That, that was what he'd been hired to do. That was why he thought he was going to Baltimore. But that's what found him in Baltimore in the first place. And as he later said to William Herndon, Lincoln's law partner turned biographer, uh, from my records, you will see how accidentally I discovered the plot. I was, I was looking for nothing of the kind. So Pinkerton discovered that it was really a plot against Lincoln and not against the railroad. Yes, and now it's, it's a peculiar thing because it didn't take any particular genius to hear threats against Lincoln at this time. They were being uttered freely everywhere. The challenge was to separate what, what was just loose talk in bar rooms, what was just blowhards letting off steam, from threats that might have a kernel of, uh, of truth behind them to, to figure out where there might be a genuine conspiracy. You say that uh, newspapers throughout the South reported that large cash bounty was on offer to whomsoever managed to assassinate Lincoln before he took office. Yes, and Lincoln in Springfield was getting all kinds of letters on a daily basis uh, that were talking about... Uh, uh, flaying, hanging, 
uh, st stabbing, poisoning. One of them refers to getting his nose pulled. But there were all of these letters uh, that one person characterized as being heaped with vile menace did crossing his much, desk. Did he put much stake in it or did he kind of poo-poo it? Uh, he, he does not seem to have put much stake in it. He doesn't seem to have taken it all that seriously. And it has to be said, it would not have been in his political interests to appear to be putting a lot of stake in it at a time when he still hoped to pull back from the crisis, when he still hoped for a reconciliation with the South. Why did um, the southern states secede when Lincoln was elected? What were they afraid of? Well, you know, there's no easy answer, but if there was, it would be abolition. It would be the uh, house divided against itself cannot stand, uh, that Lincoln was seen to be uh, uh, abolitionist-minded. It was, it was the slavery issue. It should be said that at this time, Lincoln's posture was uh, that uh, he would control the spread of slavery, but he would not interfere with the institution of slavery where it already existed. I mean, that, that was the, the posture they were taking uh, uh, initially. During the election, you said that the, the Republican convention was in Chicago, and during the convention, Lincoln considered making an appearance in Chicago after the nomination, but uh, his campaign manager said, don't come here for God's sake. We write no letters and make no promises till you see me. Did Lincoln or his campaign try to kind of hide his views or not discuss his views during the campaign? I think that there was a, um, a feeling that it would be best not to th uh, throw oil on the, uh, on, on the flames if it was possible to avoid it. Uh, Lincoln at one point, and forgive me, I'm, I'm sure I won't phrase this correctly, but Lincoln at one point said something to the effect of uh, he would gladly take a portion of uh, years out of his life if he could hurry up. Uh, the period in which he uh, was waiting to to uh, assume control because uh, he was very conscious uh, that he was the the, the long period uh, between his election and when he was inaugurated was allowing a lot of the ill feeling to fester and uh, and and grow worse. Uh, he did not feel that it was fit and proper to make to offer a lot of comment uh, until he actually assumed the presidency. Uh, so while he was in Springfield, he was fairly um, uh, uh, quiet. But as the train started moving from Springfield to Washington, stopping again and again and again, Lincoln felt that he had an opportunity, as he, as he said, to let the people look at him to let the people hear his voice and hear something of his ideas. And he said uh, that he hoped that when we get to know each other better, we will like each other the more. Uh, so this train trip from Springfield to Washington was very, very important to him. And he wound up giving, giving uh, 100 speeches, um, in, in some of cases sort of workshopping um, bits and pieces of the inaugural address, seeing how uh, how they work, getting getting sort of a preview uh, out there, uh, seeing how it would work. But he was reserving his firepower 
for the inaugural address, in which he really expected to be able to put forward his ideas and hopefully uh, offer calming words to the North and a hand of reconciliation to the South. You tell a story in your book about how he trusted his son to hang on to his copy of the inaugural address and his son misplaced it. Yes, you know, it has to be said that um, he had a, a man making his arrangements who did the best he could. But there were a lot of places where Lincoln, this is obviously the president-elect of the United States traveling on a special train, over 18 different independent rail lines, and a lot of things went wrong. It was a travel nightmare. There was no good way of getting from Springfield to Washington at the time, but Lincoln had made it particularly difficult by adding in all these stops and side trips and things so that he could address state legislators and uh, visit um, uh, in places where he wanted to make his voice heard. And making these arrangements and getting them all to happen was a real problem. And sometimes the places where he was staying really didn't know what they were in for. Although people opened their homes to Lincoln, they said, please come stay with us, you'll have a chance to get some rest. Lincoln felt he was public property, and he needed to stay in public hotels. Whenever he got to a hotel, if, if, if the, he was able, if the circumstances permitted it, like here in Philadelphia, for instance, he had what was called a handshaking levy. And what would happen is he would plant himself in one spot, perhaps on the second floor of a hotel. People would line up on the street for blocks. They'd come in, they'd be carried up this a flight of steps, they'd file past the president, shake his hand, exchange a few words, and then they'd be swept along in this tidal pull of humanity that carried them to the other side, to a, down another staircase, and out a door opposite and sort of popped out onto the street. But if you wanted to shake Abraham Lincoln's hand, you stood in line and you got your chance. And that was important to, to Lincoln, to make himself available. Well, in the midst of this, mistakes were made. Things went wrong. Some hotels were just not able to handle all of this. Well, at one point, Lincoln had left a satchel that contained the working draft of the inaugural address uh, in, the in the custody of his older son, Robert. And when Lincoln asked for it, Robert admitted that he didn't quite know where it was. So there's a scene, and, and you know, I only have this on the, of the accounts of the people who were there, where Lincoln gets up, rushes to this cloakroom in the hotel, sort of bounds over there and starts using his key to open a lot of satchels that have been deposited there. So he's seeing other people's shirts and other people's uh, collars and other people's uh, whiskey flasks and things like that until finally he comes across his own. And... Uh, the story goes, at least by, by one account, that that satchel didn't leave his side from that point forward. What was the train like? Was it the same car every time, or did he no. change cars every time? Uh, no, he, he had to change uh, trains frequently. And I, I, my impression is it sort of became a bit of a contest between uh, different uh, proprietors of the different regional lines to sort of outdo each other with the comfort and the modern fa uh, facilities that they offered to Lincoln. So he had a private car? He had a pri it was a private train, for, and, and uh, he had a private car, and, and, it would, and there would also be accommodation for the gentlemen of the press who were traveling with him. And uh, uh, some of them 
some of the descriptions we have of them make it sound sort of like a stateroom on wheels. Very nice uh, room with all kinds of appointments and comforts, but it was still a train. And uh, in many ways, train travel at that point was, uh, was primitive, slow, and, uh, and fraught with, um, with delays and, and problems, including at one point uh, some people gathering by the, by the track just to wave and tip their hats to Lincoln as he went by, decided maybe that wasn't going to be good enough, so they dragged an obstruction onto the track. The train had to stop. Uh, Lincoln did come out and, in his phrase, sort of bow to friends at the various stops. He would do that when the, when the train stopped somewhere, which it did often to take on water uh, or, uh, or, or supplies, and he would come to the rear platform. But there were always calls for him to give a speech. There were always calls for him to shake hands, and he did accommodate that to the extent that, uh, that he was able. Uh, but uh, it, it was apparently exhausting and he began to lose his voice and really was worn out um, by the, as the train moved closer and closer, further and further along towards Washington. Now, he was elected in November, and the inauguration was in March. Had, had shooting started in the Civil War at that point? Uh, the situation at Fort Sumter wa was uh, developing, but, uh, but no. Uh, but the crisis was getting worse day by day because the, the situation at Fort Sumter had begun. What was it about, uh, he made a lot of stops along the way, what was it about Baltimore that caused particular concern? Well, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, I should say, was, was the first point at which his train would dip below the Mason-Dixon line for the first time, and the first slave-holding state that Lincoln would visit on the, uh, on the inaugural journey. So uh, they obviously had very strong feelings about Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln didn't get a lot of support in Maryland uh, during the election. Obviously, uh, didn't get a lot of support in the South. And in fact, uh, Maryland was, uh, was on record the previous year as saying that uh, if the time came when secession was necessary, she would abide by the fate of her sister state, Virginia. And it was generally assumed that Virginia was going to secede, although it hadn't at the time. So when Lincoln left Springfield, there was a very real danger that Maryland would have seceded by the time he got there. And uh, one of his advisors, who was actually a Pennsylvania Republican, said to him, if that happens, the only way you'll get to Washington is inside a circle of bayonets. There was also some talk, was it um, Winfield Scott suggested Lincoln might be inaugurated in Philadelphia? Yes, there was a great deal of talk about that because uh, if any number of things happened, for instance, like the railroad lines being cut off or Maryland seceding, then Washington, D.C. would be entirely cut off and hemmed in by, uh, by, by Confederate territory. And it, Winfield Scott and others believed that if that were to happen, yes, the capital of the, of the North would have to be moved to Philadelphia or New York. And think what a symbolic step that would have been if Southern forces had seized 
Washington, and uh, as they intended to do, and captured the government buildings and records. Uh, the feeling was that it might have led to the uh, the foreign recognition that would have been so critical to the fortunes of the Confederacy. Yeah, I was reminded by reading your book. My wife grew up in Maryland and was taught the Maryland State Song, and they sang it all the time, and it starts, The despot's heel is on thy shore, Maryland, my Maryland. And the despot in the Maryland State Song is Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln and his kind. There's also reference to the tyrant's chain, and it builds to a spirited refrain of um, Huzzah, she spurns the northern scum. Has Maryland changed the Those words, words are that? still part of the official state song. Now, uh, you know, I'm a Maryland resident myself, and uh, we don't get there. We don't get to that verse when the, when the state song is, is sung. But it is still uh, par officially on record as part of the Maryland state song. So when it was Alan Pinkerton's job to, well, first protect the railroad, uh, what did he do? How many people did he take? What, what were their jobs? You know, we were talking earlier about his... Uh, yeah, his operation in uh, Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, which unfolded slowly over a long period of time. When he came to Baltimore, he explained to Samuel Felton, uh, the, uh, the proprietor of the, of the um, Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad line, that the danger here was that he was going to have to work quickly. They had a very limited amount of time in which to work. He said that my operations are necessarily slow and tedious because he has to have time to gain the trust, to win the confidence of the people who are the active players in, in whatever crime it is that he's investigating. He didn't have that luxury here. So when he came to Baltimore, uh, and when he was traveling all, all along Felton's line from Philadelphia to Baltimore, the way he compensated was to uh, bring a larger group of operatives than he would have normally, and send them fanning out, trying to put their ear to the ground, uh, whether it was in saloons or at uh, concert halls or in hotel lobbies, try to hear uh, what they could hear. Lincoln himself was posing as a Southern stockbroker because he felt that that would... Pinkerton uh, was. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Pinkerton was posing as a Southern stockbroker because he felt that he uh, this would put him in the way of meeting men who might be providing the money towards any uh, any large or large scale conspiracy uh, that was that was developing. That was their their plan, uh, and uh, it worked because very quickly uh, one of his operatives. Um, managed to insinuate himself into a conspiracy, uh, a group of conspirators who, it seemed, really did have a concrete plan in place to set upon Lincoln when he reached the, uh, the train station in Baltimore on his way to, to Washington. So the plan, he would have had to change from one train station to another in Baltimore? That's the situation in Baltimore, much as it was in Philadelphia, was that there was a convergence of independent rail lines. So that you couldn't just stay on the train and get through Philadelphia, and you couldn't just stay on the train and get through Baltimore. You had to come to the end of the local railroad line that had brought you there, and then change to the 
to the the section of the journey that was going to take you to the to the next portion. It was like a game of pickup sticks. Uh, you know, the railroad map looked like somebody had thrown a handful of dry spaghetti at a map. And uh, so Lincoln was using, uh, turning that into a virtue. So long as he had to stop and change, he would get out, very often give a speech, ride uh, in a parade procession uh, in an open carriage from one to the other, or if he was stopping for the night, to the hotel. People lined the streets and they, uh, they waved. Even in places that, were, that had been uh, supportive during the election, uh, like Albany and uh, Philadelphia, it was a madhouse. There was no reason to think that this was going to go well in Baltimore where he had no support, where the feeling against him was extremely negative. Was the original plan to put him in a carriage and have kind of a parade from yes. one train station to the he other? Yes, he was going to arrive at one train station, uh, get out, um, uh, probably make a procession uh, to uh, the home of a local businessman who was going to offer him lunch and then continue on uh, to uh, to the next train station where he would continue on nor uh, south to uh, Washington. And in order to, to, um, to leave the, uh, the, the arrival station, he was going to have to pass through a narrow vestibule. The plan that was in place, one of many, but the one that Pinkerton believed uh, was the, the most credible, was that uh, Lincoln would get out and there was a plan in place to create a diversion so that whatever police were assigned to protect Lincoln when he arrived would be drawn away to deal with this disturbance. And Lincoln would be relatively alone and un unprotected. And then the assassin could strike. Uh, that's what Pinkerton believed would happen. In fact, I've got a, I, I have it in Pinkerton's own words. Uh, was this the Ferrandini gang? That, uh, the, yes. The particular, uh, because you painted an interesting picture of uh, Davies. Was he the agent? Yes, who, Davies. Who, uh, was Harry Davies. Of, went through a swearing-in ceremony? Went through a swearing-in uh, ceremony uh, in which he was actually uh, part of the plot. Uh, he, in uh, Davies and later Pinkerton's recounting of it, these men had had a, uh, uh, a midnight meeting where ballots were drawn. And one ballot, this folded slip of paper that had been placed in a ballot box, was going to be marked with, in red. And the person who drew the red ballot was, uh, was going to be the assassin, or in, in the, the conspirator's phrase, the honored patriot. And his identity was to be kept secret, even from his fellow conspirators, so that no one would know until the moment of the crisis who it was, and then he would be spirited away. Well, instead of there being just one ballot marked in red in this ballot box, there were eight on the theory that if one or even two men lost their nerve at the crucial moment, there would be six others. And surely one of them would be able to, uh, to, to summon the courage to complete the, the deed. Here's, here's how Pinkerton uh, phrased it. He said, uh, it had been fully determined that the assassination should take place at the Calvert Street Depot, 
When the train entered the depot and Mr. Lincoln attempted to pass through the narrow passage leading to the streets, a party already delegated were to engage in a conflict on the outside, and then the policemen were to rush away to quell the disturbance. At this moment, the police being entirely withdrawn, Mr. Lincoln would find himself surrounded by a dense, excited, and hostile crowd, all hustling and jamming against him, and then the fatal blow would be struck. And he went on to explain to William Herndon later on, he said, excuse me for endeavoring to impress the plan upon you. It was a capital one and much better conceived than the one which finally succeeded four years after in destroying Mr. Lincoln's life. Were there people who didn't believe that there was a plot at all? Oh, absolutely. At the time. People in Lincoln's circle. And subsequently, yes. Yes, absolutely. And subsequently. Yes. Uh, uh, there, because, uh, yeah, this is um, one of the uh, complicated and, to my mind, very fascinating things about this episode is that um, uh, there continue to be people who, um, who doubt that the danger was as great as Pinkerton uh, let on. And the reason that this should be is, as, to me, as interesting as anything about the plot. At the critical moment, in the hour of peril, if you will, there were three people directly involved with what was going on, and all three of them had a reason to sort of shroud the details of what had happened and to go a little fuzzy. And the first of these was Lincoln himself. Uh, it was not in his political interest to dwell on this episode. He had, his advisors warned him that if he fell in with Lincoln's plan, he would be ridiculed, and he was. Uh, what happened in Baltimore uh, was widely seen as an act of cowardice on his part, and he took a great deal of heat at the worst possible moment, just as he was about to assume the presidency, and as he was trying to pull the nation, the divided nation, back from the brink of crisis. Lincoln wanted to put it behind him and move on because he needed Maryland in the Union. And the second player is Pinkerton, who insisted on absolute secrecy about his part in what had occurred, because that's how he did business. He extracted from Lincoln and others a promise that his part in it would be forever unknown. Now, he didn't keep that promise. He, he did step forward later when, uh, when it suited him to try and uh, get the facts out and claim some, uh, some credit for, for himself. But at the time, and particularly afterwards, as the nation did uh, move headlong into war, it was not in his interests to talk about what had happened because the people who were involved were still out there working, were still agents undercover. His work, for better or worse, in Baltimore flowed directly into his work as McClellan's chief of intelligence in the early years of the war. But the third player in this sort of axis of confusion that's, that, that surrounds this affair is a man named Ward Lamon. And he was a lawyer friend of Lincoln's from his early days in Illinois. And when the time came for Lincoln to go to Washington, Ward Lamon appointed himself as Lincoln's de facto bodyguard. Uh, Lamon was a big guy, uh, 300 pounds, very strong, 
and under his coat he carried two pistols, a knife, a blackjack, and for, for good measure, a set of brass knuckles. And he felt that he could handle pretty much anything that came their way. Well, Pinkerton strongly disagreed, strongly disagreed, and the two of them just butted heads from the beginning. And by the time the train actually rolled into, uh, into Baltimore, the two of them had really come to hate each other with a boiling passion. Later, Lamon came to write a memoir. And at this point, the feud between him and Pinkerton took on some real heat because Lamon said, in effect, that Pinkerton had made the whole thing up, fabricated it all to burnish his own reputation. He said he, Pinkerton had gone to Baltimore looking for a conspiracy. He felt it would be a fine thing to discover a conspiracy against the president-elect, and he discovered it accordingly. And Lamon went on to say, in the end, there, it is perfectly manifest that there was no conspiracy, no conspiracy in the heart of, of uh, 100 or 30 or a dozen, three, no conspiracy in the heart of even one man to cause harm to Lincoln in Baltimore. And so it's no wonder that there should be confusion and debate about what happened because the men who were the most directly involved in it through, uh, uh, through sand over the details for the rest of their lives. I want to back up a little bit and talk about Lincoln's trip, his train trip, because you have, according to your map, <clears throat> a stop in Pittsburgh, February 14th, 1861. You also write about a stop in Rochester, Pennsylvania, and then um, Philadelphia, February 21st, and then Harrisburg, February 22nd. In Philadelphia, can you describe what the scene was there? Well, sure. You, it, I should say you mentioned Rochester. This was one of those stops where the train just uh, stopped to greet the crowd by the side of the road. And in that particular stop, uh, the story goes that there was a coal heaver who was a very, very tall man. And so a voice comes shouting out from the crowd that says, Abe, they say you're the tallest man ever to, you know, ever seen in these parts. But we, you know, we've got a guy who's taller. Lincoln says, bring him up. So this guy from Rochester comes uh, scrambling up onto the rear platform of Lincoln's train. And they stand back to back to see who, who, who's taller. And the guy doing the measuring is um, Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, who uh, was, uh, was with Lincoln on the journey. Ellsworth is barely five feet tall, so he can't see <laughs> the top. He scrambles up onto the railing uh, of the train car so he can get a view of their two heads back to back. And he says sort of diplomatically, uh, I believe they are about the same size. And the crowd cheers. Ellsworth gets down, and they're laughing, of course, you know, at the, at the expedient that he had to go to uh, to do this. But that was the kind of thing Lincoln did, the kind of goodwill that he was trying to get, a, at a, to get across and just let people see the kind, of, the kind of person he was. And you have him raising the flag in front of Independence Hall. Yes. Uh, what is uh, important to say is that when Lincoln reached uh, Philadelphia, had the usual procession through the city. Uh, and while his um, carriage is making its way along 
uh, Chestnut Street and Broad. Uh, there are marching bands and men on horseback all coming along with him. And as he's making his way, and they're moving slowly, a man from the crowd bursts through, sort of dodges in and out uh, the soldiers on horseback and things like that, comes right up alongside Lincoln's carriage and hands a note to Norman Judd, one of Lincoln's colleagues who's sitting in the carriage with him. It's, it's, a, it's a letter from Pinkerton trying to arrange a meeting at his hotel that evening. This guy successfully got the message to Norman Judd, but it also shows you know, how easy it was for one guy who's determined uh, to break through whatever uh, is surrounding Lincoln, get right up to the carriage, hand something in. Of course, it's difficult to imagine now. Not only did this guy do it, but then when he got back with uh, Judd's reply to Pinkerton, who was standing on the sidewalk, Pinkerton says, oh, you know, we've got to do it sooner than that. Can you go back? The guy has to do it a second time. He goes diving in. I call this the crowd diving scene of the, you know, it was like, I, I imagine it as like the mosh pit at a concert. He's fighting his way through. He's trying to get to Lincoln's carriage, and he does it. He gets there a second time. It really shows you that uh, in spite of all this, um, the, the, just the huge number of people who were involved, all the people, the marching bands, the military parades and things like that, it still was a very easy thing to get to uh, Lincoln. Well, the message uh, that was delivered to Judd in the carriage is, says, I have something that you know, we need to discuss. So Judd does break away when Lincoln gets to the Continental Hotel. He goes to see Pinkerton, and he lays out the details, his belief that there is a plot waiting in Baltimore that Lincoln that was the first indication Lincoln had that Pinkerton was on the job and that it was an assassination plot? L uh, Lincoln doesn't know it yet uh, because, uh, because although uh, Pinkerton had been in touch with Judd, Judd had kept his own counsel. Now, as they're meeting together in this hotel room in Philadelphia, Judd realizes, not for the first time, that there really is a problem. And he says to uh, Pinkerton, we need to lay this out before Lincoln. So Pinkerton and uh, Judd to go, and they meet with Lincoln in his hotel room. This is in Philadelphia, and Pinkerton lays out the whole thing, tells him what his men and women have been doing in Baltimore, what they've discovered, how he believes the plot is, is going to unfold, that there really is a danger, and that uh, Lincoln has to do something about it. Before we run out of time, I do want to cover his stop in Harrisburg, so we will have covered all of his stops in right. Pennsylvania. How did Harrisburg? Well, this into is the it? thing. In the hotel room, Pinkerton says, uh, "I want you to come with me tonight, because what we'll do is we'll go straight to Washington now. We'll catch them unawares. They're not expecting you for another two days. If we go now, they won't be in position. We'll catch them unawares. We'll slip safely through uh, to Washington." Lincoln says, "No." Uh, I have uh, said that tomorrow I will raise the flag in front of Independence Hall and I will address the state legislature in Harrisburg. After that, I have no official engagements and I will be in your hands. It is not what Pinkerton wanted to hear because the closer they got to D-Day, to when the plot uh, was, uh, was supposed to be carried out, the more danger there would be. But Lincoln was insistent. And indeed, uh, he did... Uh, raise the flag 
at Independence Hall the next morning, and he says something pretty remarkable. Uh, he gives a he gives a speech inside uh, Independence Hall. He gives a talk and he pauses at one point. He says he's talking about how he's uh, anxious to restore the the country on the, the basis of the principles laid out in the Constitution and the De Declaration of, Independ of Independence, in as laid out here. And he says, "I will consider myself uh, one of the happiest men in the world if I can help to save it. If I if it cannot be saved upon that principle." it will be truly awful. But if this country cannot be saved without giving up that principle, and he paused, and he's standing at Independence Hall before portraits of Jefferson and Adams and Madison, and he says, I was about to say, I would rather be assassinated on this spot than surrender it. Now, Judd, at least, uh, was clear in saying that that was a direct response to what Pinkerton had told him the night before. Uh, but Lincoln carried on, came outside, gave another speech, raised the flag over Independence Hall, got on the train and went to Harrisburg, where he addressed the state legislature. And it was at that point afterwards that he told uh, um, Pennsylvania Governor Curtin what was happening, and he gathered his own troops, and he said to, a, said to them in the Jones House Hotel in Harrisburg, this is what we're going to do. I'm, I'm going to go along with, uh, with Pinkerton's plan. And Lincoln's men did not like it. One of them said uh, that that proceeding will be a damned piece of cowardice. You know, I'm, I'm completely against it. And he says, I will get a squad of cavalry, sir, and cut our way to Washington, sir. But Lincoln did not want to do that at a time when he still hoped if he could just avoid drawing attention to it, he would yet be able to, de to defuse the situation. Uh, we will not have time to talk about a lot of things I'd like to talk about, but Mrs. Lincoln does not come across very well in your book. Well, uh, at that particular moment, um, when uh, Lincoln was telling his, uh, his uh, inner circle what was happening, what Pinkerton had uncovered and what he intended to do about it by falling in with Pinkerton's plan. It was clear that some, something would have to be done about delivering this news to Mrs. Lincoln. She was not happy about it. And according to, uh, to one possibly apocryphal uh, retelling of this episode, uh, she, she, her reaction was delivered at such a high volume. And, you know, she's having some kind of uh, uh, sh uh, shouting um, match about it with uh, Norman Judd, who seems to have been the one who was designated to deliver the unhappy news, that she threatened to, uh, to give the game away. Now, uh, the portion of your uh, book that it tells about the Lincoln's trip from Harrisburg through Baltimore to Washington, you, you call that section the Flight of Abraham. Now, was that, was that your idea to call it that, or has it been called no, that? No, no, it's been called that, uh, called that often, and usually in a, dis in a uh, disparaging uh, kind of way, there were cartoon, political cartoons and things that uh, that came out at, in the immediate aftermath of this thing, showing him sort of wearing a ribboned cap, f flying at uh, at full speed towards Washington with his uh, coattails behind him, or or shrinking at the sight of a hissing cat from behind uh, or the door of a of a freight car. Uh, this was this was not a uh, 
the high point of, uh, of Lincoln's uh, public image. So uh, how did he end up getting through Baltimore? Well, he followed the plan that Pinkerton had laid out to him the night before, only he did it a day later. And he went uh, with Pinkerton and this other man, Ward Lamon. But the problem was that while his journey had been um, carried out on special trains, private railroad cars, up to this point, in order to get through Baltimore in the middle of the night, he was going to have to travel on a regular train for part of the journey from Philadelphia to, uh, to Baltimore. That means with civilians, with other people who were likely to recognize him. This was where Kate Warren came in. Uh, on the, the, at this crucial portion of the, of the journey, Pinkerton realized that uh, people might be on the lookout for Lincoln, but they would not expect to see him traveling in the company of a woman posing as his sister and traveling companion. And she was able to reserve uh, sort of a, a, a separate compartment in the train by saying, well, I'm going to be traveling with an invalid, and he requires quiet and privacy. Can you help me with this, sir, please? And she may have even batted her eyelashes uh, in order to make this happen. But she was able to make to to do this. So uh, so at this crucial moment, Lincoln was accompanied, you know, not by a squad of cavalry as uh, as as his advisors had wanted, but by Kate Warren, Link, uh, Pinkerton's secret weapon. And we're told that Lincoln was charmed by this, that he had something pithy uh, to say when he was introduced to Kate Warren at the Philadelphia train station. He says, uh, I had not known that it was one of the perquisites of the presidency to acquire in full bloom so charming and accomplished a female relation. Well, I don't know if he actually said it, but I like to think that he did. So spoiler alert, Lincoln was not assassinated, made yes. it to Washington. <laughs> um, and for the rest of the details, people will just have to read the book. But uh, what uh, number book is this? Uh, this is my uh, fifth nonfiction book. What are the topics of your others? Oh, I've done uh, a biography of Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, in which the Pinkertons appear, uh, a book about uh, Philo T. Farn Farnsworth, the uh, boy uh, inventor of television, who carried out a great deal of his work uh, in Philadelphia, and uh, also uh, a book, my most recent book prior to this one, is called The Beautiful Cigar Girl, uh, and it's about a celebrated murder in New York and uh, how Edgar Allan Poe attempted to solve it uh, through fiction. And Poe, uh, as you know, also uh, spent a good deal of time in Philadelphia and did some of his most important work here. Is uh, writing books a full-time gig for you? Yes, it is. You have another book in the works? You know, I'm working very hard on uh, different ideas, but, uh, but I don't have anything concrete yet. We are out of time. Our guest has been Daniel Stashauer. He is the author of this fascinating book, The Hour of Peril, The Secret Plot to Murder Lincoln Before the Civil War. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.